waffle, copy white waffle, all right. Uh, hello there, Waffle Easters. Hello. It's been a while, hasn't it? It, it has been a while, yeah. 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 And it's, now it's coming up to Christmas, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. And so, we need to get this new waffle out there. We do. So it, it's now December. It yes. was back in October when we spoke to Simon Anderson. Yes, it was. Who it was. is the... Uh, Director of Publishing and Audio Network. Yep, we went to their offices in London. We, we did. We had a great afternoon there. We did, and uh, as you might remember, uh, we we wanted to because this is a musical podcast. Yes, it's, Simon is um, uh, uh, you know a music publisher, but also a music scholar and a musician. He was our keynote. At he was our keynote at Icepop. So we wanted to. Uh, I wanted him to play us some of the tunes that he was talking about on the piano. And that led you to carry a very large um, well, they did. Uh, keyboard well, into London, well, I, I think it was. I seem to remember it was you that carried the keyboard. For some reason, I wasn't carrying it. I think I had a bad back, didn't I? You were just making up excuses. So where we were in central be London, your carrying all of that stuff yep. all the way down. Yeah. Chancery Lane. He thought we were ridiculous when well, we got there. It was all right. It was, but it was. Most people it, think we're ridiculous. Well, it was a very good it interview. Was, it was. It was. It was. Yeah. Um, so we got to talk to Simon about his history in copyright and yep. music, and we'll hear a bit about that. Um, and we also get a chance to talk to him about some of the music copyright cases. Yeah, copyright we talked to him about the his studies that he did at um, University of Westminster mm-hmm. and Lost in Music. Yes, so we talk about that. And, but one of the things uh, we did discuss, the case, um, the copyright case, is the Blurred Lines case. Yeah. Um, and we don't actually have uh, an audio of us sort of going through the audio with Simon. So I thought it might be just useful for those listeners who uh, aren't familiar with the Blurred Lines case, or who are, to hear a bit of what this one sounds like. So this is Marvin Gaye, um, who, and the estate of Marvin Gaye, taking legal action against Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams um, over this uh, potential infringement. So... So this is the uh, Robin Thicke song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a short quotation from yeah, it. Just a bit, yeah. And this is the Marvin Gaye. The Waffle Easters can't see that you're boogieing around to this. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. Yeah, um, yeah that uh, it just makes me want to dance when I hear. I just thinking back to Simon's keynote and he was playing all this disco and funk and, and yeah. it was the first thing in the morning. I was like, I can't, I can't just sit here. You wanted to get up. I wanted to get up. Anyway, um, we thought it might be useful just to have a bit of that. I mean, the the thing we discuss around it is whether that is actually copyright infringement yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has been discussed a lot on the internet. Um, other things that Simon talks about is music publishing generally, how it works, and yeah, copyright. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he talks a bit about how he got into his sort of background um, as a, a, a chorister at uh, Durham mm-hmm. uh, Cathedral, I think, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But let's not spoil the surprise no, too much. Let's no. let's let's go to our interview with Simon and, and hear what he has to say. And um, go and back in time to ourselves. Go a few back in ago. time and uh, and hear about what his favourite cake is at the end. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Um, okay, so uh, over to us uh, back in the offices of uh, Audio Network back in October. Copyright Muffle. All right. Well, hello there, everybody. Hi there. So it's Chris here. And this is Jane. And we're back with another Copyright Waffle. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, today we are having a a musical theme. We aren't are, we, we yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. So we are very pleased to be here at the offices of Audio Network in London uh, to be talking to our guest Simon Anderson. Hi there, Simon. Hi, hello, hi everyone. So uh, for those of you who attended Ice Pops uh, earlier on this year in Edinburgh, Simon was our keynote speaker, so you will have seen him speak then. Yes, fantastic keynote you did for us, Simon. Thank you. Stop so, me if you think you've heard this before yes or heard this one before heard this yeah, one yeah it wasn't my idea for a title but it worked very well yeah. Smith song yeah a- absolutely yeah no I, I, I did a, a Smith's reference in a talk recently as well so it seemed to be Can't a lot of oh you did yeah I did, yeah. yeah you'll talk about copyright and plagiarism anyway yeah. let's 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 uh, less about you less about me yeah and, yeah. and uh, uh, thank you very much for having us here today it's a pleasure yeah so we're in uh, the listening room at Audio Network the music public Publishers and uh, there's there's a there's a ukulele in the corner and a and a turntable over there. It's all it's very large speakers. Speakers, yeah. I don't, mm, don't know yeah. what's the word, but uh, a lot. Um, so yeah, we're looking forward to, to to chatting to you and perhaps kind of yeah turning our attention to the sort of musical aspects of of copyright. Yeah, I think the first question is from me. Yes, isn't it, it so is indeed. Yeah. Simon, uh, you know the form, but our, so our first question is usually uh, to kind of get you warmed up. But I mean, what was it that got you into working in this fascinating, glamorous world of music and copyright? It was it was never planned. I have to say, you know, I'd I'd, I'd, I'd loved music since I can remember. You know, mm. as, a, as a toddler, really, my, my mum and dad had tons of records. My dad was a DJ in the seventies when when that meant seven inch singles. You know, so the house was just full of vinyl and we always had music on mum had a piano because she played when she was younger so as, uh, as soon as I could I was trying to pick out melodies on the on the piano uh, I went to sing as a chorister at Durham Cathedral aged eight so I was uh, soaking up music yeah. from a very young age yeah. um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it I, I wrote songs, I had a band at, at, the, at uh, school and in, in the mid 80s you know, so I was very sort of influenced by synth pop and I was writing pop songs mm. went to university to Edinburgh to study music and, and, and still didn't really know what I wanted to do at the end of it uh, but um, my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife got a job in London in book publishing so we moved down and I just started applying for any jobs that looked vaguely to do with music and there was one at MCPS now I didn't know what MCPS meant Mechanical Copyright Protection Society I didn't know what mechanical copyright was mm. didn't really know what copyright was mm, mm. Um, but I applied for that and, and got the job and so my, my, my first sort of career step was in, in licensing music for CDs um, uh, back in the late 90s and I did that um, for a couple of years and then I moved up to PRS which is the Performing Rights Society sort of sister organisation um, and that's licensing uh, public performances, concerts, broadcasts um, so I kind of learnt about copyright through my early years at MCPS mm. and, and PRS but as a, as a creative musician I, I was a little frustrated I wanted to be much more involved in the creative side of music actually you know making it and, and um, you know, working really at, at a music publishers um, so I started applying for jobs 
and um, was lucky to, to get one in um, Suffolk at a, at a printed music publishers uh, doing sort of hymn books and, and church music, which is what I'd grown up with. Mm. Um, so that's when I really learned that the value of copyright. You know, P- PRS is kind of, it, it's licensing a lot of music in under one blanket licence most of the time. But as an employee there, I was, I was really sort of working with data and, and, and matching the right performances to the right... Um, works on the database so it was really when I worked at a publisher's that for the first time I started to appreciate you know the value of music in 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 both in terms of the the pleasure that it gives consumers and and listeners and and therefore the value that is attributed to it and 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 that is then paid to the the publishers and, and the composers and the artists and the record labels Mm-hmm. Um, and it also taught me, I guess, at the same time that you know you need a, a publisher to do that work for you because as a composer, you don't have usually the, the sort of commercial knowledge uh, and ability and, and global reach to get your music to uh, to the audience that that wants to to buy it and 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 listen to it. So uh, the, I understood really the the, the roles that, that publishers and record labels also bring to to music's commercialization yeah yeah and and now you you work at the audio network and that's like one of the biggest kind of music publishers isn't it yeah i mean again i didn't know the first thing about the audio network is a production music library i didn't know what that was yeah i'd worked at mcps and prs who licensed production music at library music um, as it as it was called, it tends to be called production music now. Right. It's music for audiovisual productions. So the best way to describe production music is to 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 say that it's really it's music for the eyes rather than for the ears. If you if you buy a Beatles album, um, you're really buying music that was conceived to be heard first mm. and foremost, and and without any other distractions, you, you're just focusing on the sound and enjoying it. Um, whereas production music is written specifically to be synchronised with picture, so its very conception is 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 different. You you don't suddenly want something that jumps out at you. I and mean, the, the the a good example would be Bohemian Rhapsody. You don't hear that on the TV mm. because it's got loud bits, it's got silences, quiet mm. bits. It's very dramatic. The lyrics are really quite unusual. So if you put that track underneath a wildlife documentary, mm. no one's going to be focusing on what they're seeing because their mm. ears are being assaulted by yeah. um, an, an amazing song. So production music tends to be a little bit more sort of uh, uh, flat in terms of uh, its its uh, dynamic range. And, yeah. uh, it, it often has uh, vocals and, and lyrics, but it tends to be the instrumental versions that are used. So if you watch lifestyle programmes like the, the, the uh, property development programmes uh, we were watching last night at home, location, 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 and that's just stuffed full of production music. Right. You have title music at the start that's commissioned, which, yeah. is, it's, which is unique to the show. Yeah. But then all the way through, there were probably 50 different cues of, of production music, some from Audio Network, many from other libraries as well. And um, they just set the tone and, and the scene and the emotion... And um, you barely notice they're there, actually. I was going to say that. I think and, now uh, I'm going to be watching yeah. these TV programmes with yeah. a, a different kind of, um, well, yeah. listening out for yeah, that. But yeah, but it's, it's ruined the way I watch telly. I yes. can't, and films as well. I just can't sit and enjoy a TV show without <laughs> zoning in on the music and going, what is that? What are they using there? Is it production music? Is it, yeah. is it our music? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, 
it's it's important for, for TV mm. music. And it's also useful because the set of rights that come with it are much, much more straightforward. If you want to put a Beatles track in your TV show, you probably can, but it will cost you mm. quite a lot of money. You'll yeah. need to get permission. You'll need to tell them what you're going to do with the show, what, yeah. what's the storyline. They'll need to get artist approval so it you know, can be declined. Uh, so it's a lot more... Uh, complicated and expensive to use uh, what we call commercial music in, in um, TV compared to production music. Mm. Uh, so I had to learn all about uh, how it works, about sync licensing, what, you know, the, 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 the license that you need to put a piece of music with a film, and then all the royalties that come back uh, when, when, when it goes on TV around the world, which is mm. partly what, what PRS do um, a great job of doing, and their sister organisations around the world. So you know, typically you, you earn um, a licence fee up front, but then you also earn royalties on what we call the back end when, when the show's aired. Um, mm. That can be six to 24 months after the broadcast date, depending on which country it, it airs in. Mm. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting world that I knew nothing about uh, 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, and I'm still learning every day. You know, it's, uh, mm. it's, a, it's a big and, and uh, you know, quite, quite complicated area of, of music, but uh, it earns a lot of good royalties for a lot of composers around the world. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you know, struck me, um, because I mean, we, we first met when we were both working at, at PRS, at PRS yeah. um, and since sort of moving out of the sort of music industry space into sort of other areas where copyright is important um, and having sort of studied copyright law and, and how, how it works... Some of these terms are kind of quite specific to the music industry. So that's mechanical right, this performing right, these sync mm. rights. Mm. You know, none of those are um, actually expressed in the legislation anywhere. It, yeah. it, they are terms that the industry uses to talk about certain you know, uh, ways of, of licensing things. Yeah. So um, it might just be worth... Uh, if if that's okay, sort of unpacking some of those terms for our listeners. Yeah, We've got absolutely. some who kind of uh, listening in as well from from outside the UK. So I think in some ways there's differences, aren't there, between what happens in the UK versus other yeah. countries? Yeah, I mean it's far from straightforward. I, it, it'd be so much easier if there was a global copyright law, and, and you know to some extent there are there are conventions that many countries have signed up to to harmonise the way that rights are licensed, but um, nothing is entirely global. I guess if you turn the clock back 150 years, the job of a music publisher was really straightforward, and they just printed music at a time when the only way that music could be consumed would, would, would be to, to play it and, mm. and, and sing it, and so that you know the sheet music of, of popular songs of the day was sold, and, and people would take it home and, and play it on, on a piano or sing it or play it on a guitar. Uh, there were public concerts, but you know they were tend to tended to be pretty expensive, and, and so you know the, most people couldn't afford to go. Mm. So you would go and buy the the copies of the local um, of, of popular popular songs, which often were you know classical songs in the day, mm. opera, light opera. So it wasn't really until the late uh, the latter part of the nineteenth century that performing rights came in. Um, a, a French composer. Uh, was in a cafe and heard one of his songs being played by a busker who was collecting some money for it, and he thought, well, hang on, uh, I should have a bit of that. You know, he, he's getting all that money and I wrote the song. If, yeah. if I hadn't written the song, he wouldn't be getting paid. So he got together with some other composers and they formed the first PRS in the world, the French one, which is uh, Sassem. 
and uh, that was around 1864, I think. Uh, so for the first time, public performances of music had to be licensed, uh, so French concert halls would take out a licence with SASEM, send in their programmes, SASEM would work out who, who to pay um, based on a percentage of the, of the box office fee. Um, and then it was really the early 20th century when uh, mechanical copyright came into play, and that was when technology was invented that, that enabled machines to, to copy music, and the very first um, iteration of that was piano rolls. So those, those pianos mm. that you wind a handle and, and a roll goes round and it plays itself. Oh, um, mechanical, hence yeah, yeah, a machine-made copy of music. Yeah, so the, the, yeah. the, 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 mu- the, the paper had holes in it that enabled yeah. the, the notes to play. Um, and again, the, the music publishers were saying, well, hang on, you know, the, these roles have got our music on, they're selling the roles, yeah. we should have a bit of that money. And, and so the concept of, of mechanical licensing came about, um, and uh, that was around 1910, I think, the, the MCPS was set up in the UK. Mm. So that was the precursor of, of vinyl and CDs, um, mm. and so you know, mechanical copies were, were, mm. um, were sold and, and licensed. Uh, broadcasting came in in the 20s, radio, and then television in the 30s, and, and so this was again a new technology that mm. brought music into into households, and again the, the publishers were and, and composers wanted to have that licensed properly, so so PRS uh, were involved in that in the UK, um, and then the, the the most recent change and perhaps the most complicated of all is really in digital um, distribution. So um, streaming and downloading of music um, has has thrown all kinds of complexities into into licensing the key one i guess being that music for the first time goes global mm. um instantly mm. and uh, whereas previously everything was licensed territorially and, mm. and it was much easier to manage uh jurisdiction over just one country suddenly you know youtube it reaches um 260 something countries at mm. a time and how do you make sure all the rights are cleared for that and the rights holders are paid fairly for, for the music that adds the value to the videos that, that are shown and have advertising shown against them and, and make billions of dollars of revenue. Um, so there, we're, we're still kind of unravelling all that. I mean, there's a whole yeah. different uh, conversation in, in its own, you know, dig, digital licensing. Mm. But we're catching up, you know. I think when all these new technologies come in, it, it presents a problem that, that the industry has to solve, that legislation then has to come in and, uh, and define... Um, and then there are all kinds of test cases where people sue each other and say, you can't do that. Yes, I can. And then the courts decide, well, you know, well, this is how it, we think it should be. Um, so it's constantly evolving, constantly fascinating and deeply complex. Mm. Yeah. And, and just uh, thinking about, I mean, that uh, distinction between performing rights and mechanical rights has been quite a, a challenge for um, the music industry because um, if you think about performance, that's something that happens in a... In a public performance in a public space yeah. and then mechanical was relating to reproduction and the fact that you're reproducing something in some kind of physical form yeah. um, digital just changes that because yeah. you know both things are happening at the same time and what is the nature of a copy and that when you're referring to the the piano roll there that sort of created that concept of mechanical reproduction I mean that was 
th those were the first computer programs, if you like. They, it was mm. programming a machine, wasn't it, with the holes yeah, in, in the right. roll. Yeah. Um, and then digital kind of messes with those concepts, yeah. how things have been have been sort of set up. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it, it adds further to the complexity in that a stream and a download are, are a combination of a performance and a mechanical copy because there's a there's a copy made on the computer. If it's a download, it's a permanent copy. If it's a stream, it's it's a temporary copy. But there's still an act of copying and an act of, of um, communication or performance. Mm. So, yeah, there's another reason that uh, digital platform licensing is, is even more complicated because the, it's a it's a mixture of two different rights. Yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, one thing I was uh, wanting to ask you is 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 the what kind of things you're working on at the moment then because you you one of the reasons we wanted you and we'll talk about ice pops at the moment and we wanted you to come and talk um to to us uh, at that event is because you did some study into uh, music and copyright cases and infringement cases yeah so i wondered if you could talk to us about that and this what's sort of the latest stuff that's happening in that area yeah, I mean, it's been an, uh, an interesting 15 years at Audio Network. When I joined the company, it was a small, um, I guess, just, just provincial UK music library. We were based up in, in North Essex and uh, a staff of about six mm. at the time. Um, and it's just gradually grown over the last 15 years, so it, it's become international. It's been very interesting, very exciting. Um, you know, the first five years I was there, we were just focused on the UK, and then we opened offices in, in the States and Canada and Australia and, and around Europe. Uh, so as we've grown, we've had to wrestle with different... Um, uh, you know, copyright law, um, different terms of protection for, for copyright works in different countries and, and just had to sort of get our head around it all um, as we've grown. Um, not having any uh, previous sort of legal experience, I'd studied music but I'd never studied law, uh, I, I felt a bit of a gap and, and, and so I, I found a, a postgraduate law course at Westminster University uh, which was specifically aimed at entertainment industry law mm. um, and I set that uh, from 2013 to 15. Uh, so they had modules on IP, on technology, on uh, media law and contract law and all these different areas that, that we were having to deal with. But I'd just been kind of, uh, you know, finding my own way in. And I should say that as a, as a rights holder, we were probably at lower risk. Um, production music libraries tend to own all the rights uh, outright. So there's no concept of a shared copyright where, you know, an Ed Sheeran track might have 30% with Sony and then his co-writer's mm. got 20% with Universal. And there's, there's this sort of messier copyright picture with, with production music. You own it all and, and you own the sound recordings as well. So we're only ever granting people rights to use our music. So there's generally less likelihood of, of production music libraries falling into legal wrangles. Uh, but nonetheless, I did feel that we needed some, you know, additional sort of um, in-house um, understanding. And I was particularly interested in the question of, of plagiarism and mm. what, what, what creates a plagiarism. At what point does a, does a piece of music in, infringe another piece of music? Obviously, as a, as a rights holder here, we've got sort of 17,000 unique copyrights at the moment and all of those are assigned to us and in the act of assignment the composer is 
guaranteeing that it's all their own work, um, that they haven't copied anybody else's work. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, as the publisher, we're we're the ones that are ultimately granting those rights and and we're the ones that would be liable if one of our tracks did turn out to be infringing and and was on a TV show and then the the broadcaster or the production company um, gets a claim. Um, so uh, having studied music and having a good understanding of music's construction, um, I was really quite interested to learn a little bit more about, well, w- what does the law say about infringement? And I was quite surprised to learn that it didn't really say anything. It, t- it tells mm-hmm. you that you can't make a copy of a whole uh, piece of copyright music and, and you can't make a copy of a substantial part of, of, of a piece of copyright music, but it doesn't say anything else. What, what, how do you define substantial what can you do, what can't you do. Um, so I wanted to look at the cases that had been heard in, in UK courts and um, again was surprised to learn that there only had been 12 or 13 in, in the last um, 100 years or so, whereas in the States there are many hundred yeah, um, and yeah. ongoing. Yeah. Uh, the most recent one to be heard in the UK was in 2006. Um, and I think the reason is that the stakes are getting higher and higher. Mm. When, when, a, when a case comes before a court, it's still a little bit of a toss of a coin as to which way it will go, mm. purely because you can't measure infringement in the way that you could measure a speeding offence or, or drink driving offence where the, you know, there is a, there's a test and, and there's a line which if you cross you, you've committed a, an offence with, with music. There's no way to, to define um, what constitutes an infringement? Mm. So I wanted to study the cases that there had been, and um, I mean the good thing about court cases is that you get to to see all of the arguments, the documents become public, and so you can see what the defence was saying, mm. um, and what the other side was saying, and what the judge's ruling was, and, and the reasons for that ruling. You can listen to the the music and make your own mind up as well. Um, so it's great for those cases that do make it to court that you get that extra bit of. Um, information but um, it's equally frustrating for all the ones that don't make it to court that um, everything settles with with NDAs and, and there are many hundreds of these every year just just in the UK um, that you never really get to hear about and um, you know I do think that, that it's an area that we need to have more information to, to help us um, you know, just to stay on the right side of the law. I don't think anyone wants to willfully infringe anyone else's copyright, but um, if it's not easy to understand as a, as a creative person what you can and can't do, yeah, um, then then uh, you know, un, unintentional infringement is is going to happen. Mm. Is is there a sense in the industry that there's um, not necessarily more infringement taking place, but that it's there's more focus on it? Because of, the, of sort of the fear um, of of you know getting it wrong and, and, and being too you know then there's been some fairly high profile ones and things that you mentioned yeah. um, during your keynote. Is there a sense that people are spending more time trying to really ensure that their work is original? I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, as I said, nobody nobody wants to infringe. But when the blurred lines ruling, particularly, came out, that one really sent shockwaves across the industry because you don't find many people who think that 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 track is is an infringement of, mm-hmm. of Marvin Gaye. You know, it's it's very much the same style of music. But if you take the lyrics and the melody and isolate the the copyrightable elements of it, they're entirely different songs. Yeah. Whether it was because it was a US case and heard before a jury, uh, that that could uh, be be part of the the reason that it that, that it um, 
was deemed to be an infringement, but um, because that's one of the things you actually were mentioning before before we started recording that um, you recently did a similar talk that you did at Ice Pops for mm. a group of music students, and and when you do your talk, and we'll put a link to a, a videoed version of, of your Stop Me um, uh, lecture, which is excellent with the with the red and the and the green cards yeah. and easy the infringement or not, or you're not sure. Mm. Um, the um, the Ice Pops audience were were thinking that the blurred lines case, and we'll put a link to the to the blurred lines thing in the blog as well, if anybody's not not aware of it. Um, that they felt that it was um, an infringement, uh, whereas perhaps if you know the people are kind of more picking up on the construction of the music and picking mm. up on the elements, like you say, mm. the melody, the bass line, the lyrics, and thinking about it in that way, they'd see that it wasn't. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, the, they were music students that I was speaking to in the States, um, whereas the Ice Pops audience were academics, librarians, mm. a mixture of yeah. uh, people. And, and um, I think, yeah, perhaps the musical, uh, the deeper musical understanding would, would, would lead you to con- con- conclude that it isn't an infringement. Mm. Uh, but regardless, you know, the fact that it, rule, it ruled in favour of Marvin Gaye's estate and um, that it was an infringement really has, has sent um, shockwaves, as I say. Uh, we have composers now who are anxious that music that they've written um, may have uh, unintentionally infringed. And the very nature of production music is that it's, it's music in the style of, of other music. So we have mm. disco albums, we have rock albums, mm. indie I mean, albums. that was the thing that occurred to me when I first saw the Blur's Lines case was production music it's so much of it is based on get me something that's a bit like that yeah. but not that because it's too expensive exactly. and i just want to pay for this and i want all the risk to go away yeah and and therefore it must be for um i mean not necessarily for your organization but i know that there's when i was working in um you know uh, dealing with production music back when i was at prs there were you know there are products that are out there that are specifically it's this but it's not quite that yeah yeah and uh, that, that's when you really need to know where the line is because, uh, I mean, we, we tell all of our composers, go after a style, but don't, don't copy individual songs, don't copy melody lines, mm. lyrics. Um, and there's quite an art to doing that. You, know, you immerse yourself in the, the Bee Gees and ABBA for uh, a couple of days and then out comes a song that's in the same style and you get female vocals or falsetto male vocals and, and all the percussion instruments that go with it and you end up with something that does evoke the style of... Of, of 70s disco without hopefully um, crossing any any infringement lines along the way. Because you do sometimes wonder, is it just becoming increasingly difficult to actually be original and to not be, you know, influenced by uh, other people's work? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any examples that you might be able to share with us? Now, I'm thinking either we can play the keyboard, if you can think of anything here, or we can <laughs> drop some audio in later. Um, the resources that you've you've got, so you've actually got some stuff online that came out of your Westminster yeah. course, haven't you? So you've got yeah. a lot of stuff there. Yeah, so the thesis I wrote um, was then um, built into a web resource by Westminster University, and it's lostinmusic.org. Mm. Um, so on, on, on that uh, website, we've got all of the audio of the 13 cases that were, were in just little extracts, you know, 20 seconds of, of each piece um, we've also got a score so you can follow it if you read music and see how, how they look similar or mm. not um, and then there's the judgment 
Um, and you can also vote yourself to say whether you think it is or not um, an infringement. So we've got all of the cases that were actually decided, but also a lot that were settled out of court, uh, where obviously there's no admission of, of um, liability, but um, that there is some kind of settlement that would be reported somewhere in the press. And then there's also a, um, a selection of uh, um, of music that's still in in... In, in what would you say in still in decision mm. uh, still being decided it's in the media it's been reported as uh, uh, a, you know a case has been brought but there hasn't actually been a decision so um, the, of the two that are most uh, interesting that are about to come up uh, in the US there's one between uh, Stairway to Heaven and a track um, um, called Taurus by a band called Spirit um, and there's also an, an Ed Sheeran track um, um, thinking out loud and uh, a Marvin Gaye song uh, let's get it on and um, so they're ones that people are looking very anxiously at to see how they're, how they're going to be decided and perhaps the greatest ever version of that uh, particular court case was the live version we did at the uh, evening social uh, at Ice Pop <laughs> yeah, <It> was, yeah. <laughs> We got a recording of that. I don't. I think it's probably good that we don't have a recording no, of the yeah, entire gig. Yeah. It's probably one of those you had to be there. Had to be yeah. there. You had sure. to be there. Exactly yeah. to listen to my singing. And you had to uh, yeah. to partake of the refreshments in order to um, yeah. kind of smooth out the dynamic range of some of the different performances. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Is there something from any of these that we think we could play and have a quick? Um, yeah, I, mean, I think the Ed Sheeran one's up there. So this is uh, I mean, a couple of his have settled, and it's not um, it's not as if Ed Sheeran is a serial uh, plagiarist, I should say. No. But it tends to be wherever the there is a lot of money behind. I, I, I mean, the, the thing I've noticed about Ed Sheeran is uh, he he seems to be a sort of focal point because he seems to be one of these figures in music. I really like Ed Sheeran. I think he's great. I think he's really talented. But it's like he's taking those other ideas. And kind of using that as a sort of, it's really similar, but because I'm doing something different with it and original, it kind of, his persona is original, and therefore his material is is not particularly original, but his style is, and so it's almost like he, he kind of, gets away with it there's sort of familiarity yeah. about his yeah. his style you're right um, but, but is it to do with the fact of how successful he is as well well that, I think it's uh, there's a mixture people then decide to where go, there's go the whole, after it, where there's a hit there's a ritz is, yeah. is, the, is yeah. the old cliche thing completely uh, but I think that you know and I suppose they say the same about Noel Gallagher as well don't they it's that they, yeah it's, I was going to mention that he was he was the sort of um, 10 years ago 20 years ago he was the one that everyone was and he'd go right because you know Oasis songs made a made a, a a lot of money as well and mm. you you know you wouldn't go after a song that hadn't really sold more than a handful of copies because the damages aren't going to be yeah. very significant and no. the legal costs can often outweigh the actual uh, the damages as well um so we've got uh, a couple here there's let's get it on is the marvin gay song from the the 70s and they both have the same um chord structure and, and backing but very different lyrics so. and melody So just a four four chords underneath yeah. it, and it, and it goes round and round. Um, and Ed, Ed Sheeran's song has the same four chords, but a very yeah. different melody and uh, lyric. Yeah. You might just have to.
also bearing in mind they're quite different um, melodies. I think oh, they're I gonna... just think they're so different. Totally different. I mean, they, they, they've yeah. got, they haven't even got the same chord sequence. Not entirely it, the same, it, yeah. There's a couple of differences, mm. aren't there? And, and, and even so, the chords are... I and mean, it's it's one four five or yeah very straightforward <laughs> very popular chord sequence. I mean they yeah. they have the same syncopation in them as well. So yeah. the so the, the the chords change off the beat. But uh, the question is, you know, can can that is that copyrightable? Is is mm. what Marvin Gaye's done there copyrightable? Yeah. Uh, I haven't been able to find any that predate that. So with with blurred lines, there are quite a few examples of similar styled songs that that were written, uh, you know, one or two years earlier than uh, Got to Give It Up. But with this, uh, I think the the classic defence argument would be: Can you find a song that predates "Let's Get It On," but mm. has the same chord pattern again with the same syncopation, and then it would be thrown out? I think. I mean, mm. I'm sure they've got <laughs> hundreds of musicologists scouring through early '70s uh, soul and and uh, funk music to see if there's anything um, that that would uh, you know predate Marvin Gaye that would be the the best argument. But who who knows? I mean, I, I think following the blurred lines ruling, mm. it's no one's going to be betting strongly either way. Mm. If blurred lines had had ruled um, that it wasn't an infringement, I think this probably wouldn't have even been brought. This this case never mind. No, it seems to be taking it to a sort of a ridiculous extreme. Yeah. Mm. Where yeah things that share some sort of vague similarity. Yeah. And it's the same attorney as well. Oh, so, you know, he's okay. scored a, a, a hit with uh, the first one, so you know he's going. And be... you mentioned it's a jury that gets to decide. Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting that works distinction in, in the states. Yeah, in, yeah. in the UK, it's a judge and yeah. um, you know experts on experts. both sides yeah. giving yeah. giving yeah. their testimony, but the yeah. judge makes the the final decision. And if that's disputed or appealed, then it goes to a higher court where, yeah. where the three judges will then give an opinion. So it's kind of you know. A wider uh, decision but with uh, with the US it's a jury and, and I guess that sort of brings in people with, with maybe less understanding of music and yeah. who are going to be yeah. maybe deciding more on instinct. And yes, yeah. Obviously they get to hear all of the legal arguments as well. Yeah. But um, I read an article that suggested even, even Robin Thicke's um, behaviour in court, that, that he was fairly, uh, you know, disrespectful and, you know, just, just not really engaged so with the process. Would sort of swaying the jury in some yeah, way. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he's a controversial figure. Mm. Mm. Well, moving on. To my my mind is still on the subject of potential copyright infringement. I is think it? you ask your question, and let's see whether we can, can, uh, we can link the two together. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, yes. So, um, what we're interested in um, is whether you've got any copyright heroes, Simon. Is there anyone you know whose heroes. work inspires you? You might not think of them necessarily as a Yeah, a I got one or two actually. I mean I, I was can I just uh, before you uh, before you start, we would like to ask you, but this is the opportunity to see what you think of this one. To see whether he thinks it's an infringement. Well let's just introduce the introduce the question. <laughs> Starting out and in our time of need, their wisdom, grace, and eloquence inspires us to succeed. They're the people who we work with, who brighten up our day and value. 
Adam tree and send us on our way. There are copyright heroes. Just a demo version at the moment. We'll put all the bells and whistles on. That's beautiful. I'm the Does horse it remind too. you of anything? Is there any, any, Do you know, any that other, I mean, that's kind of 1970s? Not a specific track, but um, it's got that flavour of uh, a sort of a Western film scores. Yes. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest film buff, so I wouldn't know anything. Well, I don't think it's for our place to point out whether there may be or not any similarities between that jingle and another copyright work. Yes. Yeah. I think we leave it to okay. leave it to the public. But certainly structurally, you know, the chord progression is is, is <laughs> I think I've heard once or twice before. It's got a bit of a folk element to it as well, mm. I'd say. Mm. Mm. Um, but the the melody itself, um, I don't think anything's jumping out at me. But okay, good. Let's see. Good. Right. <laughs> good. right. But back to the question. Yeah. The jingle so prompt. Copyright heroes. Heroes. Mm. I I really love a good clear uh, explanation and and good eloquent uh, use of English. Mm. And uh, I became really fascinated when I was studying law, uh, um, reading the the judgments that were handed down by these learned uh, judges who you know, ultimately are the people that everybody turns to to make a decision and um, so the, some of the earlier ones in, in the uh, English cases were, were Denning and Diplock in, in the uh, 60s and 70s but the, the recent um, uh, the king of IP uh, law in, in the UK is Mr Justice Arnold Richard mm. Arnold who you know mm. is still um, delivering um, very clear eloquent judgments and um, you know I, I think he I'd certainly say a hero I, mean, I almost met him once we, we were at um, Westminster because he was a um, alumnus of the, the law school there so he he um, gives a, a a guest lecture once a year and I, I went along um, but I would have been a bit kind of starstruck you know yeah well we did sure invite him to the copyright party that we had last oh, year really? that you came to he yeah. unfortunately he's a busy guy wasn't able to accept our invitation but, yeah uh, but he, did, I, he did respond to us, didn't he? Did he, think, uh, did he? Or did he? Or maybe he didn't. Oh, I'm not sure. No, I'm not no, sure. No, we, went, we, went, we saw him give a lecture, didn't we? We did, well, yeah, actually. about the... Yeah. Uh, He's making the case for a, a, a brand new copyright act yeah. and a, a, a proper um, review yeah. in, with a committee like like was yeah. done. And, well, it's been 70s. a while, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was an event that Eleonora Rosati yeah. organised, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. So, so I mean, yeah, he certainly is. But I mean, I think there are a lot of unsung heroes, and I've, mm. I've met some amazing people in the music industry who are just championing the rights of, of music, the, you know, the value that music brings to to the world, and, mm. and um, you know through the PRS board, through the, the Music Publishers Association board, UK Music, the umbrella organisation of, of, of uh, the music industry, mm. um, who are lobbying governments and, and getting, um, you know, getting people informed about uh, the, 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 the risks, really, that the value of music is under, under mm. threat from, particularly with, with um, the, the sort of digital distribution of music and how easy it is to bypass or you know, get stuff under the radar and, and, and mm. not get a fair um, a fair reward for the creators and the and the rights holders of the music. So there's a lot of stuff going on and, and you know I'm in, in you know really I think we're all grateful to these people who, who spend such a lot of their lives just, just campaigning for um, a better deal for mm. for the music industry. Mm. And they're doing a lot of work around um 
copyright education as well, I think, UK music, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, lots, very yeah. very interested in that area. Yeah. yeah, and again, at the Music Publishers Association, I'm, I'm on the edu- Education and Training Committee there, and, yeah. and there's a group of six or seven of us who meet every couple of months to, to talk about how we can help get, get better... You know, in, get get people better informed about uh, about music rights. They run a lot of courses. Um, they do a lot of, of outreach work, yeah. um, and um, you know, lobbying governments on on education and you know, making sure that children have as much access to to music as as they want and and mm. the opportunities to learn. I mean, it's changed since I was at school. My mm. my kids are at primary and secondary school now, and they, and they just don't have the resources now that, that no. I had. No. And um, you know, should it should should it be that way? No. You know, we mm. really want to um, you know try and ensure that uh, there's there's enough resource out there for everybody to have access to to music education. Yeah, and it's not just for those people with lots of money as well. Yeah. But it's actually in yeah, the state schools. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, if there aren't any other copyright heroes on your list, only the Westminster University guys because oh, yeah. they, mm. they they taught a brilliant course and they yeah. really fired me up with enthusiasm. Mm. And um, I mean, there are many other really good higher edu- education courses as well. But you need good teachers who are you know inspired, uh, energetic, and mm. um, you know the, 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 it was a, a great course. And that's really kind of fired my enthusiasm to to, to keep on learning and, and to mm. keep on sharing information. You know, it, it's a constantly evolving thing and I think the more we can talk about talk about you know the, these kind of copyright issues and, and, and share information and get draw people in ask ask them their opinions um, mm, well they're lost in music um the, the resource is fantastic. Yeah. It's really, yeah, it's really great, and yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's great to be able to sort of. Well, I had a similar experience. You, you're following your professional track, and then you mm. say, "Here's the time when I want to go and mm. do some more study and, and be around those people," and then you bring it back into the, you know, into your job as well and combine yeah. the two together. It's mm. fascinating, and there's no right and wrong answer, and that's the other yeah. thing that's interesting. You know, it's only ever a human's opinion. Mm. Is it an infringement? Is it not? Mm. Um, you know, it, that's the other thing that fascinates me. Mm. That that Ed Sheeran one that we just heard there. I mean, that that's uh, it doesn't sound like an infringement to me, but um, a lot of people would say it is, and, mm. and, and um, we're we're all interested to see how that one rules in yeah. in, a, in a few weeks' time. Mm. So, the question I wanted to ask next then is uh, whether you have a favourite nerdy fact or anecdote <laughs> about copyright whether it's one you've picked up during your studies yeah. or at another time well there are a few actually I mean one of the jobs me and my team have is to ensure that everything we release is public domain for the world so most of the music we release is commissioned and it's originally composed um, especially for the library but also we have arrangements of, of public domain music mm. so that could be Christmas carols, folk songs, mm. nursery rhymes uh, or, or classical music uh, as well so um, we've got you know arrangements of Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and they died hundreds of years ago so there's no problem but you, when you get into the early 20th century the, you, there are you get you get music that's in copyright somewhere and out of copyright somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing that's really been uh, exercising my brain over the last few years with, with Audio Network. And the biggest surprise of all was O Solo Mio, the, the Italian song. I think um, probably unfairly it's more more well known as the, the uh, Wall's Ice Cream commercial oh, yes. <laughs> from the 70s. <laughs> but um, that was written by a, an Italian composer called Eduardo Di Capua, who I think 
died around 1920, so you know his life plus 70 years protection has long gone. But um, an Italian court ruled that uh, he he had a co-writer or someone someone who sold him some melodies or something in the 1890s, and and um, his w- name wasn't Juan Cornetto. Was it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, if only I thought of that one. <laughs> he, he's terrible. Ma- <laughs> terrible. Matsucci, I think his name right, is. Okay. He did. He died in the 70s. So the an, an Italian judge ruled that that uh, that track was in copyright, certainly in Italy, um, and we had a version of it in our library. So we had to take it out straight away. We were, we were contacted by the mm. Italian publishers. You know, you're selling licenses to use mm. our music. It's it's in copyright in Italy. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know that was a that was a surprise. But there are a few other niche cases. There's a there's a, a couple of Gershwin. Uh, Rhapsody in Blue is, mm. is still in copyright in the States because they used to have 95 years protection after the track, after the piece was first published rather mm. than... Oh, the, the duration in the States mm, is it's really confusing, yeah. isn't it? But we went ahead and recorded that with, with a big orchestra two or three years yeah. ago and uh, and then just realised, oh, we can't release it until uh, 2020, I think it's... It comes out of of January next year, Mm. so we've had to sit on that one rather than Mm. release it. Um, One or two Christmas carols that everyone thinks are public domain, A Little Town of Bethlehem, I think it's the the main, the UK version of that tune is is a folk tune that Vaughan Williams collected, so that's still in copyright. Mm. Uh, And even one or two opera arias that are, Puccini's the the one that um, catches most people out because he died again in 1920-something, so he's public domain, but some of his librettos were written by authors who died in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and so their um, Ness and Dorma um, and Omiya Bibino Caro are the two sort of really big popular ones that are still in copyright and they, yeah. they catch people out. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, just kind of, you know, we have to be absolutely sure that it's out of copyright everywhere. Happy Birthday was the most recent big case. Um, It was ruled to be public domain or never to have been copyrighted, I think, in the States. Mm. Uh, But under European law, the 70 years after the death of the... the, the, Hill system. Yeah, that's Mm. right, Mildred and Patty Hill. And I think the last one died in 1946, so gets 70 years, which expires um, in 2017. So that it would be out of copyright anyway Mm. in... Uh, in Europe, but France have added some uh, years to the 70 to cover the war years, so in France you get 70 years plus 6 or plus 8, depending on whether the music was written before the First World War or the Second World War so we still have music that's in copyright out of copyright everywhere in the world except in France Um, in fact Elgar and Holst are just coming out of copyright in France uh, right about now, so we've got mm, all our yeah. orchestral recordings of Pomp and Circumstance and Land of Hope and Glory and Mars from the Planets are, are ready to be released in the next couple of months because mm. finally mm. they yeah. go out of copyright in France. Mm. So I don't wow. know if they're geeky enough. I they're, they're, they're extremely <laughs> geeky. Yeah. Like, that's, that's that would definitely brilliant. wow people at dinner parties as well. <laughs> yeah. Also, mm. 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 or just get them all better singing. Better than your joke. Just one cornetto. No, much better than you. Were still chuckling away to yourself about your own joke. Oh, dear, oh dear. Yeah. That's yeah. That, is, that is it's tragic. Enduring. Yes. It's enduring. Yes. Um, this is the time. It's time for another jingle, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. We've got time. Yeah, quick, quick little jingle. All right. Uh, is it a cake jingle? It's not a cake jingle. Oh, yeah. Copyright news, 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 copyright news. 
I think you're safe with that one. You can't, you can't surely have infringed anything. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure it could be regarded as an original creative work. I'm not sure it could either, <laughs> no. So, copyright news. Is there any, any interesting topical copyright news that you might want to share with us? Well, we covered the, the upcoming infringement cases, which are going to be yeah. really interesting to see. Yeah. I think in, in the wider music industry, I think you've also covered the, the DSM directive, uh, Article 17 particularly, which you know mm. the, the music industry has been lobbying uh, strongly to get better protection on digital platforms. That was um, passed uh, earlier this year. I think it comes into um, effect in 2021. So the European Commission are currently putting guidelines together for how individual countries have to adopt it. Um, and similarly in the States, the um, Music Modernization Act um, recently passed into law has got a lot of building blocks for a better framework for licensing uh, music on digital platforms, which is um, you know, always caused difficulty mm. um, in the States, particularly where they have different, um, different sort of um, copyright uh, infrastructure. Um, and then, of course, closer to home, Brexit's caused us to, to scratch our heads for, for many months, and we've still no idea really how it's going to unravel, but there are particular challenges there for uh, touring musicians, um, for people, uh, for publishers who export uh, music and uh, uh, physical copies of CDs, of, of music, DVDs. Um, and uh, and also for uh, licensing rights into Europe, you know, are there going to be additional uh, bu bureaucracy, um, you know, problems to clear? And um, uh, it's you know, it's caused a lot of anxiety across mm. the music industry, and um, again, a lot of lobbying. But we're waiting to see mm. exactly how it's all going to unravel. Yeah. yeah. Yes, clearly, it's. <laughs> Well, let's not talk at length about Brexit. It's a complicated beast. <laughs> quite yeah. depressing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, a quick one. Can we ask where you would go to keep yourself up to date with things around copyright? Um, maybe as it relates yeah, to the music industry. I there are an awful lot of um, blogs that I subscribe to. Um, mm. Some you know, d daily news updates. I, um, the IP cat is great. Uh, the general IP law. Uh, there's the complete music update. Uh, CMU, which is a, a daily digest of, of music industry news um, and a lot about sort of copyright issues. Um, then on, on on a paid subscription, I subscribe to Music Ally, which is again a daily digest, mm. um, and Music and Copyright, which is a um, a very good um, uh, fortnightly digest that comes around on on a PDF, but um, gives a really good um, update on sort of global mm. um, copyright issues. Um, a lot of conversations, you know. I mean, again, it's a, talking to colleagues here at, at the Music Publishers Association at the PRS. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of information shared um, because we all need to know what's going on and, and um, you know, share opinions and, and ideas. Um, legal seminars, uh, a lot of law firms now are putting on uh, often free seminars mm. on sort of, you know, the, the digest of, of the big um, uh, copyright issues of the day. Um, and, and day courses as well. And then there are um, e uh, industry events, uh, conferences. I was down at Medem uh, not very long ago. And um, there's also um, the BBC Introducing is coming up later this month and uh, Sens Sensory up in, in Sheffield. So there are a lot of sort of trade fairs for music industry and for the audiovisual industry where they have panels on different mm. uh, um, areas of, of copyright and mm. law. Mm. So there's loads of information. Wow! Yeah, yeah. That's, Lo yeah. that's a brilliant set. Of, I mean, I used to catch up with Music Ally when I was yeah. in, in PRS. That's really a good. Great yeah, resource. Yeah, I think it's uh, on to the 
home stretch. I think we? we're on to the yeah. home stretch. Oh, indeed, yeah. So we have our we final have question, um, and we usually like to bring uh, something along for our guests as well, some something to munch on when we're off air, basically. Yeah. Um, cake. Are you a fan of cake, Cake. Simon? Who isn't a fan of cake? Wow. Have you found anyone yet? Uh, oh, we did have someone who no, wasn't that keen on cake, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, there was... was I, I, Bart seemed to think tiram, was tiramisu a cake. I oh, remember that discussion. Yeah. 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 I'm taking the lid off. Yeah. And we're hoping... Oh, Chris has been baking this morning. <laughs> I did this bake. Crack it's impressive. Of dawn. Now so I can... These now are, I can vouch for the fact that this actually happened. These are banana muffins. Fantastic. Um, I don't know if you are a fan. Yeah. We're hoping you haven't Always. got some sort of allergy. That yeah. No, no banana strange. allergy or muffins. But if, if, if you had to choose, other than these wonderful banana muffins, yeah. would you have a favourite cake? Please? I do have a favourite cake, and it's a, it's quite um, a regional delicacy, but coming from almost Yorkshire, mm-hmm. although I'm, I'm, I, you'd be hard-pressed to tell by my accent. <laughs> I've moved around so much. Since I was a child, I was born about, um, well, the other side of the river from Yorkshire in, in Stockton-on-Tees. Okay. And the, my, the Christmas cake up there is eaten with Wensleydale cheese. And oh. it's the most sublime uh, combination because the, the rich fruit cake and yeah. the dry, crumbly cheese go brilliantly together. And I've delighted ever since in, in sharing, uh, well, not just the, the information, but actually having a load of Wensleydale cheese at home and yeah. fruit cake. And, and when we have visitors, especially at Christmas, you get a, a nice slice of both and, and oh, urge you to try it. So could you just put the Wensleydale with any Christmas cake or is it a special? Well, for, you know, rich fruit cake. I mean, there is a Yorkshire fruit cake, which oh, is right, without yeah, the marzipan and the icing that yeah. they have all year round, a fruit loaf, yeah. um, which goes very nicely. But, you know, Christmas cake as well. It's mm. great. And alternate mouthfuls, you know, they, they just offset each other. Well, aren't they? I'm hoping we can get the podcast out before Christmas time. We can say, oh, oh, I think oh, we can definitely do that. Yeah. And, and Christmas yeah, we could have a run on uh, rich fruit cakes as well, <laughs> with the way things are going with our guests as well. Yeah, yeah. but banana yeah. muffins too. I'm very much looking forward to mine. Yes, banana muffins. Yes, made by Chris. Look, they amazing. Are. They smell they good. I haven't, I haven't tasted one I'm yet. so impressed. Mm. Yeah. Thank mm. you very much. Yeah. Mm. Uh, right, well, well it's thank- been fantastic, Simon. Oh, it's been yeah. a pleasure. I could talk all day, as you yeah. probably can guess, yeah. and, uh, we can and regularly do. more music. We can discuss Chris's latest jingle. Yeah, and, uh, and write the cake jingle next time, Chris. Let's hear I, will, well, it. I think we're, we're talking about what the cake jingle's going to be. <laughs> yeah. we've got, we're working on the brief. Jane sends me the brief, Yeah. and yeah. then I then I get some notes, and then we eventually... Knock something into shape. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> thank you very yeah. much. Fantastic. It's thank been you. Really good. I've really fun. enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. It's not legal advice, but it will have to suffice because it's copyright waffle. Copyright waffle.